0: My name is Andrew Blumenfeld, and this is the Money in Politics Podcast. The passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently has totally upended a year already defined by disruption. The immediate focus has been on the question of when and how the vacancy she leaves behind will be filled and the impact that this will have on the presidential and U.S. Senate elections underway. But of course, the longest term consequences will stem from how a new justice will change the work of the Supreme Court, potentially for a generation. And just one of the many areas of the law that could be affected is the role of money in politics. In fact, I recently sat down with a lawyer who is working on issues before the Supreme Court as we speak that could have lasting impacts on our democracy. His name is Ron Fine, and he is the legal director at Free Speech for People, a national nonpartisan nonprofit organization that aims to reduce the role and influence of big money and corporate interests in elections. We recorded this conversation just before Justice Ginsburg's death, so we don't discuss her legacy or how the vacancy will influence their work. But nonetheless, I think the discussion only has greater relevance now than ever. But first, a brief message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning
1: is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and
0: start your free trial today. So I'm here now with Ron Fine. He is the legal director of Free Speech for People. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Let's just start with you. Why don't you share with folks a little bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to the role that you have now with Free Speech for People? Sure. I'm a
1: public interest lawyer, and I joined Free Speech for People in the beginning of 2014. Before that, I was focused on environmental law. I worked at the United States Environmental Protection Agency for about eight years, and uh, I came to Free Speech for People because I had come to the conclusion that a lot of the problems that we see with environmental issues are in part because of the excessive influence of corporations and and wealthy donors who are influencing our political system and our constitutional democracy in a way that makes environmental progress as well as progress in a, a whole bunch of other areas much more difficult than it needs to be.
0: And so that leads nicely to telling folks a little bit more about what is the mission and ultimate goal of free speech for people. You've kind of alluded to it just there, but how do you how does free speech for people try to operationalize or or make real the vision that you just described?
1: So Free Speech for People is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. And it was founded in January of 2010 on the day of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. And Uh, For those who are unfamiliar with it, Citizens United is the Supreme Court decision that basically said that uh, corporations can spend unlimited money to influence political elections. And Free Speech for People was founded with a mission of uh, fighting to reclaim our constitutional democracy. And the areas that we focus on are challenging the influence of big money in politics, uh, confronting corruption at the highest levels of our government fighting for free and fair elections and through this all we're looking to advance a new jurisprudence jurisprudence just being a fancy word for uh, new sets of uh, legal decisions that are grounded in the promise of political equality and democratic self-government and the tools that we use for that are legal advocacy public education and organizing we the people
0: So there are two tracks I know, at least two tracks that you all have been advancing recently to to make this a reality, one legislative, one legal. I want to probably spend most of our time actually talking about some of the legal work that you all are doing to challenge some existing case law that, that has contributed to the way in which we see massive amounts of money flow into politics today, especially through super PACs. But let me start instead actually with the legislative track because I understand that some changes have occurred to the way that Seattle is going to be running their local elections, and that, that is in part due to work that you and Free Speech for People have done, and that is the Clean Campaigns Act in Seattle. So can you tell our listeners, what is the Clean Campaigns Act, and you know, what, how, how, is, how does it aim to improve the quality of elections in Seattle?
1: Yeah, the the Clean Campaigns Act is a a bill that we worked on with uh, a local partner called Fix Democracy First and uh, Seattle City Council member uh, and now council president, Lorena Gonzalez, who led this effort in sponsoring the legislation. And the Seattle City Council passed it uh, unanimously uh, in January of 2020. What the law does is it bans political spending by a certain class of corporations, which the law defines as foreign-influenced corporations, which means basically corporations that have some degree of foreign investment that's more than trivial. And what that means is that, for example, a multinational corporation that's responsible to investors all over the world is not in the same position as a corporation that, that doesn't have that degree of foreign investment. And what the law does is it prohibits those foreign-influenced corporations from spending money to influence uh, elections in the city of Seattle.
0: And they haven't had—correct me if I'm wrong—any elections since passing this law, or or have they had elections under this new law yet?
1: Not yet. So Seattle has uh, odd-year elections, and the, the big one is the uh, the mayor uh, is going to be a, an election in 2021. So that will be the the first major city election under this new law it was passed right after the 2019 election where uh, interestingly enough um, amazon which is of course headquartered in seattle but is really you know a, a multinational that you know views itself as responsible to stockholders you know all over the world spent a uh, million and a half dollars against city council candidates that didn't meet its approval and, and that helped illustrate the need for this legislation
0: So I guess the answer could be both, but was the primary goal here with the Clean Campaigns Act to eliminate foreign influence in Seattle elections or corporate interest in Seattle elections?
1: Of course, this law does bring those two issues together. I think a lot of people read the Citizens United decision more broadly than it actually goes. And, and one of the things that Citizens United said is that it applies to corporations that are associations of citizens. And that that may be true of the actual Citizens United organization, but it's certainly not true of your typical, you know, multinational Fortune 500 publicly traded corporation. And uh, it's not coming from a place of xenophobia or, uh, you know, hostility to immigrants to say that actually under existing federal law, somebody who is not a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident is not allowed to spend any money at all in an election. So a let's say a Canadian citizen who's living in Seattle on a, a visa or something like that couldn't spend a dollar to influence a Seattle election. And, and that law has been upheld by the Supreme Court since Citizens United. So what this Clean Campaigns Act is saying is that if they can't spend a dollar of their own money. Why should they be able to do that through a corporation where they own stock?
0: And I believe that the threshold in Seattle is five percent ownership by, by foreign interests. I'm curious, sort of, how, how did how did you all, how did the organizations you work with, how did ultimately the council wrestle with the question of control? of actually having enough of a stake or enough of a say. For instance, I know the decision was made not to make the threshold sort of who's on the board of directors or who's actually cutting the check, right? It really was just about having investors, having stockholders in, and that that threshold was 5%. So I'm just curious about how that came to be and sort of the thought behind ensuring that the to your point that foreign actors who are not allowed to make a dollar contribution you know because they are controlling that dollar, how did you kind of how did you work to analogize that to the corporate context
1: so the thresholds are five percent as you said for uh, bulk foreign ownership, uh, so to speak multiple foreign investors or a single foreign o- investor that owns one percent. And the interesting thing about corporate stock ownership is something that that might surprise a lot of people. They might think, well, in order to sort of have an influence on the corporation, you need 51% or maybe 49%. But it turns out that even 1% of stock ownership at a, a large corporation is phenomenally influential. And In fact, somebody who owns 1% of stock can get the CEO on the phone and get their call returned within 24 hours. And in fact, the federal securities laws actually set 1% as a trigger, a threshold rather, for where you can put things on the proxy for shareholders to vote at. And the business community actually said, frankly, it should be lower than 1% because very few investors actually own that much stock in a publicly traded corporation. So it turns out that corporate law experts, and we had one, a professor from Harvard Law School, John Coates, testify to the Seattle City Council, generally agree that a 1% ownership of stock by a single investor I'm not talking foreign versus domestic at this point, just in general, that 1% ownership is certainly a level at which any investor can have an influence. We're not saying these are all controlled. These are not necessarily foreign-controlled corporations. They're foreign-influenced corporations. And what that means is that when the CEO or the vice president of government relations, whoever is the person who's cutting the check, is thinking about how they want to spend money to influence elections in the city of Seattle, and they're thinking about their fiduciary obligations to their shareholders. They don't think of themselves at this point as local companies. They think of themselves as global companies. And if they know that they have foreign investors at you know, significant levels, that affects their decision-making process. Sometimes it'll be in writing, sometimes it won't. It'll just be, you know, in their minds. They'll they'll understand that they have to be responsive to, you know, investors that could be uh, you know in Europe or Asia or or wherever else that are That may have issues or interests that are quite different from those of Americans, let alone people in Seattle in particular.
0: I want to shift now to that legal strategy and specifically some of the work that you're doing and that free speech for people is doing around super PACs. But actually, before we leave this topic alone. Seattle is now the largest city in the country that has adopted this kind of measure, but it is not the only one. Is that right?
1: That's right. And uh, before Seattle, we were uh, very proud to work with uh, local partners in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. We, we worked with uh, grassroots organizations, including uh, American Promise, the League of Women Voters, and the Leaf Nissen Foundation, uh, and passed uh, legislation in November of 2017. It's not identical to the Seattle bill, but it's, it's pretty similar uh, in this respect, and it also uh, includes... A, a limit on contributions to super PACs and in addition to the Seattle bill that has passed we uh, also are working on similar legislation in other cities and states uh, around the country
0: terrific well i've teased it a couple times but one of the things i'm really excited to be talking to you about today is the work that you're doing potentially you know before the supreme court with regards to the amount of money and therefore, I think, influence that super PACs have over federal elections. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you about it is that, and I've said it on this program and just elsewhere in my life before, that Citizens United is quite the boogeyman and it is one of the more commonly known Supreme Court cases to the lay person as far as Supreme Court cases can be known or are known by their name to the to the average person. But there just tends to be a lot of misinformation about it. And even as I was learning about the work that you were all doing. I found myself learning a lot more about it even than I thought I knew going into it. So for all of those reasons, I'm really excited to learn about the work that you're doing and share it with the folks that are listening. So let's just start with actually some of these misunderstandings about what Citizens United did and did not do, and maybe that'll help tee up kind of the work that now you all are doing with regards to super PACs.
1: Sure. So Citizens United was a Supreme Court decision in January of 2010, and it overruled previous Supreme Court precedent, and frankly, federal laws going back a century, that uh, had banned corporations from spending money in federal elections. And corporations are still prohibited from giving money directly to a candidate. So a corporation couldn't, let's say, write a check to the Trump campaign or the Biden campaign. But since Citizens United, corporations are allowed to spend as much as they want, millions, theoretically billions, uh, in support of uh, campaigns and, and candidates. And that's true, at least of the corporations that that meet that definition in the Citizens United decision, of course, of being associations of citizens. And the exact limits of, of how far that goes may be something that gets uh, tested, depending on whether anyone challenges the law in Seattle. But what Citizens United did not have anything to do with directly was super PACs. Super PACs were created by a later a lower court decision called Speech Now versus Federal Election Commission that came out a few months after Citizens United and extended it to a totally different circumstance.
0: And what is that different circumstance? I mean, what is that distinction between what Citizens United opened the door to and specifically what Speech Now you know, said because of Citizens United, we're also going to extend it to super PACs? Explain the logic that took place. Between the you know the the lower court, the D.C. Circuit Court, interpreting what they were hearing from the Supreme Court on Citizens United, what was the chain of logic that led them to read Citizens United and and extend it further?
1: So first of all, I should explain what a super PAC is for those who who don't know. Uh, for years, there's been something called a political action committee or a PAC, and a PAC, a regular PAC. Is an organization registered with the Federal Election Commission that collects limited contributions from individuals. Uh, You can give up to $5,000 per year to a regular PAC, and then it gives limited contributions from its funds to candidates. And those are also limited to a few thousand dollars a year. So those PACs have been around for quite a long time, and a lot of people are already not pleased with the disproportionate influence that that regular PACs give to wealthy donors because most people obviously can't give $5,000 a year to PACs or one PAC or, or, or several, maybe not even 500, maybe not even 50. But super PACs are a, a totally different creature. So w- what happened in speech now was that a organization was formed called SpeechNow.org that said uh, we want to spend money independently, meaning we're not going to give it directly to a political campaign. We're going to spend it on their behalf in support of them, or maybe you know attacking their opponents. But we're not going to you know ask them where they want us to spend the money. And because we're spending it independently it can't have any corrupting value whatsoever. And corruption is what the Supreme Court looks to when it's looking at laws regarding campaign finance. And so they said, because the money that we're spending will be supposedly spent independently, and therefore it can't be corrupt, therefore we should be allowed to receive unlimited contributions. If somebody wants to give 100,000, 100 million, 100 billion, whatever it is, we should be able to receive unlimited contributions and then spend it on elections. And that would have been illegal because the statute which is actually still on the books says that the maximum amount that anybody can give to a political action committee is $5,000 per year. But the uh, Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit, which is a, an intermediate federal court, it's an important one, but it's certainly below the Supreme Court, uh, said that in in the court's view that Citizens United meant that this pack should be able to operate in this way. And the reasoning that they had was, well, I guess I should explain what Citizens United said. Citizens United was about corporations making this independent spending. And Citizens United didn't say anything about contributing money to a political committee. And it didn't certainly say anything about super PACs because super PACs didn't exist at the time of Citizens United. But Citizens United, in its opinion, did have a line saying that independent spending can't be corrupting. So the DC Circuit took this line and then made a logical error. And I think actually the easiest way for me to explain the logical error would be to give you a simple example. So suppose that you are a politician, Andrew, and uh, I'm a wealthy donor, and I want to bribe you to lower my taxes or you know, pass some legislation or stop some legislation that uh, I, I want you to do something. So one way I could bribe you is by giving you a bag of cash directly, right? But you you may not want that. That could look sketchy. Another way I could bribe you is by writing a big check to your campaign, except I'm only allowed to do that up to $2,800, which to most people is a lot of money, but it's it only goes so far in terms of w- whether you're willing to risk federal prison um, for this bribe. But an, another possibility is, and here I'm trying to give a you know a, an, an analogy uh, to a super PAC is, what if I said, well, what's your favorite charity? Maybe you you know have a college or a school that you're associated with, or, or some other cause that you would really like to see ten million dollars given to that entity. You don't get the ten million dollars, but nonetheless, it's something that you want and that you think will. You know, in some way, be in accordance with your wishes, so I say absolutely, I'm going to give you know ten million dollars to your favored charity in exchange for you doing this thing. Well, a super PAC is is like that, only more so because here, instead of just being a charity, it's actually helping your elections. So what I do as the the briber, the the big donor here is I say, I'll give you ten million dollars to the super PAC that's going to help you get elected. Now the the people at the super PAC supposedly aren't gonna ask you, the politician, you know, what types of ads to buy because that wouldn't be independent spending. But nonetheless, you know that that money is gonna get spent to your benefit. So most people looking at that would say, well, yeah, there's a chance that could happen and, and that would be corrupt if it did happen. And in fact, there have been a couple of cases that involved conduct pretty much like that. And moreover, when you ask people, does that look like bribery to you? Most people say yes. If you do a survey or an experiment, most people will say that that looks like bribery. But the court in speech now said, well, you know, if it's spent independently, it can't possibly have any corrupting effect. And the reason that they made that mistake was they weren't focusing on whether the contribution to the super PAC could have the corrupting effect. They were looking at just, well, is the person who runs the super PAC, which is you know some political consultant, are they the ones who are doing the bribing? And they said, well, I guess you know that person can't be doing any bribing because he's spending the money independently. So this is a long way of saying that what the Court of Appeals did in the Speech Now decision was it it took a, a sort of a, a logical leap from a line in Citizens United Based on no evidence uh, about how these things actually work in the real world, uh, and as we've seen in the 10 years since Speech Now, super PACs have flourished. At at this point, at the federal level, there's vastly more money going into super PACs than into candidates' campaigns themselves, and it, it provides opportunities ripe for corruption and that's why we think that the speech now decision is ripe for challenge even if the supreme court is going to stick by citizens united speech now took it to a whole another
0: level so let me do my best to summarize and so you can tell me if i understand it <laughs> correctly is whereas citizens united allowed corporations for the first time to sort of spend on their own limitlessly to support or oppose election you know candidates for federal office Speech now went a step further and said that individual citizens could actually give endless money to entities that are helping to support or defeat a candidate for federal office, so long as that entity wasn't actually the candidate or campaign him or herself. It had to be sort of technically legally separate entities. Is that sort of the gist of the t- of the differences, at least, between what the two cases did?
1: Yes, that that is the gist, and I think that there's a pretty good chance that at least some of the justices who joined the Citizens United majority, what they thought they were doing was striking down a law that banned corporations from spending money on elections. Now, at Free Speech for People, we're not happy about that either. Obviously, we think that was wrong. But nonetheless, even taking that as given, that what they didn't think they were doing was opening the door to uh, the creation of these super PACs and totally restructuring the way that campaign finance works, because they still continue to say That the limits on contributions directly to a candidate are constitutional. It it would be illegal for you to write a check to the Biden or Trump campaign at this point for $2,801, because that's a dollar more than the limit. But you could write a $28 million check to the super PAC supporting them, and that's a system that nobody ever passed, nobody ever wanted except for those wealthy donors.
0: So it's interesting, you raise the point of, you know, you're not even sure that's what the justices who wrote the Citizens United decision sort of ever envisioned or thought that they were even doing. And this Speech Now case, which was decided by the DC circuit in the same year, right? So it actually was sort of happening concurrently in terms of the, you know, they were moving through the legal system concurrently, just at different levels. So then this leads us to the status of the work that you all are doing right now to to change that at the level of the Supreme Court. And so you all are involved in and sponsoring and helping to support this lawsuit, Lou, against the FEC. Why don't you tell people what that's about? And interestingly enough, right, not trying, in this case at least, to overturn Citizens United trying to overturn speech now at the Supreme Court. So maybe explain folks what you're hoping to accomplish with that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is a a federal lawsuit. Uh, The the plaintiffs are Ted Lieu, who's a Democratic congressman from California. The late Walter Jones, who was a Republican congressman from North Carolina, uh, was a plaintiff. Unfortunately, he uh, passed away while the lawsuit was ongoing. Uh, Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat of Oregon. And then uh, three other 2016 congressional candidates of, of both major political parties. And we assembled an all-star legal team that included Democrats, Republicans, uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe, uh, one of the nation's uh, leading constitutional law scholars, as well as as others. I won't list everyone. And what this lawsuit aims to do is something that really should have been done 10 years ago, which is bring this question to the Supreme Court. Because what happened in speech now was that the government government which had lost that case because the law got struck down, decided not to appeal it to the Supreme Court. And they had a bunch of different reasons for doing so, but one of them was written down in a letter by Attorney General Eric Holder under the uh, Obama administration. And Eric Holder wrote a letter in which he said that the government wasn't seeking Supreme Court review because they thought it would only affect a small subset of federally regulated contributions. I mean, maybe that's what you know he thought at the time um, in uh, the early days of 2010, but it's obviously uh, anything but. So we wanted to create a, a new case that would raise the exact same question constitutionally that should have been appealed in the first place in, uh, in, in 2010 in the Speech Now decision. So we filed this lawsuit in 2016 shortly before the election. And it's been, you know, working its way up through the appellate process. And it's in the very same circuit that decided speech now uh, up to this point. So of course, the, the courts that have already decided the issue said, well, this is, you know, dictated by our, yeah, our speech now precedent. But now we're at the point where we have filed a petition for Supreme Court review. And the Supreme Court is under no obligation whatsoever to follow speech now. And we're very excited that the Stanford Law School Supreme Court Litigation Clinic has taken on this case and helped uh, formulate that. And the government uh, is due to respond on September 21st. And they will say at that point whether they think it should be presented to the Supreme Court or not. And then uh, we'll have a, an opportunity to respond to that about two weeks later, and then it will go to the justices to decide whether they want to take it up. And we think there's a very strong chance that by perhaps a slim majority, um, I'm not you know, expecting it to be unanimous, but that, by, uh, that, that there would be a, a majority uh, that would be willing to strike down speech now, even though uh, wouldn't be willing to retreat on Citizens United.
0: And help us understand a little bit about where that optimism comes from, both in terms of their willingness to take up the case at all, right? Because that's still a pending question, as you just described, whether or not they'll even hear the case, and then assuming they agree to hear the case, agreeing in your favor, you know, more specifically to overturn speech now and to kind of put back in place the or let be enforced the still-in-place laws that restrict contributions to these PACs. What are some of the things you look for as, as, as good signs when, you, when you're when you optimistic about the future of this case?
1: I think that the court's past term is an, an indication, um, not on campaign finance in particular, but if you look at a, a range of cases uh, turning on issues like LGBTQ discrimination and the, the Civil Rights Act, Uh, You look at issues with pandemic and voting that the Supreme Court has defied a lot of expectations in the the past few years about sort of a a raw partisan analysis where people just assume that, you know, all Republican justices are going to vote one way and all democratically appointed justices are going to vote a a different way. And, you know, I don't want to name particular justices at this point, but we know that there's a concern among some about the legitimacy of the court and having it not become a partisan cudgel, and that even on the Citizens United majority and the, the justices who either you know, voted for that or replaced someone else who did, that uh, an opportunity to do something that basically restores the statute that Congress passed, and we're not asking them to do anything more than to say that a statute of Congress is, is constitutional, without requiring them to retreat one millimeter on Citizens United itself, would provide an opportunity to restore some degree of public legitimacy to the court at a time when it's under attack um, from a lot of quarters, and that it would help provide a pathway for some of the justices to see daylight between Citizens United and Speech Now.
0: And to your point, I mean, to the extent that it really does, the reality we're living in does represent a departure from what Maybe they had envisioned when they were first drafting the opinion of Citizens United, giving them an opportunity to kind of further define the boundaries around what they were talking about without putting them in the position to have to overturn precedent that they themselves just wrote only so many years ago without even kind of weighing in on the legal merits of it, it just sort of at least provides a little bit of logistical framework <laughs> that, that at least makes sense you know, to me, non-lawyer me over here. So I think that's all really neat. And I think it's an especially helpful description because I think, again, as I said at the outset, the the way you've described the work you're doing, I think both illuminates for people what the actual state of the law is and why it is that way, which is not always clear, I think. And also some real thoughtful you know, pathways forward for those who think that, that the way things are right now is is just not right, especially as it pertains to the vast sums of money that super PACs inject into the system. So first, let me thank you again for for joining me here. Thank you even more for the work that you're doing for free speech for people. And before I let you go, any just information for folks about where they can go to learn more, to keep up? Because all of what you've described, a lot of it is, is work in progress. Where can they follow up on work that you are all doing to the extent they want to and can get involved? You know, just where would you point them to before I let you go?
1: That's a, a great question. So first of all, our website is freespeechforpeople.org. And that's the you know, the word free speech for people. And on Twitter, we're FSFP. And uh, I think that if people go to the website and follow us on social media, they'll, they'll learn a lot about the work that we're doing, and we'd love for people to do that.
0: Well, I'm sure many will. So thanks again for so much for what you're doing, and thanks really for being here and explaining it all to me and our listeners. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and
1: advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai, and follow us on Twitter at CallTime.ai.